Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Albion Obsessed podcast. We're feeling quite poetic at the moment. Last week, we uh, chatted to the Brighton Bard, and this week, we have another fantastic guest with us today. But we're also joined by Curtis. Curtis, my friend, how are you? Splendid, my friend. Absolutely amazing. Good. Very good today. Fantastic. That's what we like to hear. Uh, Toby, we welcome you back. How are you, mate? Yes, yeah, doing doing amazingly. Uh, still haven't quite gotten over the win four <laughs> 0 against United, so absolutely buzzing still. Yeah, it still puts a smile on my face when you mention that scoreline. Um, what a day it was, um, and I'm sure we'll ask our special guest about that in a little while. Um, so we also welcome John Bain, aka Attila, the stockbroker. How are you, John? How are you, my friend? I'm all right. I'm good. Yeah. Um bit knackered i've just got so much to do at the moment uh covid the the, the whole sort of two years of, of of no gigs um when i was supposed to be doing my 40th anniversary tour um was uh, was a real piss off frankly uh but now i'm absolutely back on the road again and i'm happy to say that everybody who wanted to put me on then is wanting to put me on now and then some so i've just got an enormous amount of stuff to do uh, and of course, it's coming up not long now to, to the festival that I that I run or co-run Glastonbury in a couple of weeks' time at Coombs Farm uh, in Lansing. Uh, and of course, um, we've just had the elections where um, where you may you may or may not know that my wife became the first Labour councillor for Southwick Green ever um, last year. Well, this time we got her friend Jude in for the other seat. So. Um, and obviously Worthing has been completely taken over now. And Ada are well on the way to ki- kicking the fossilised Tories into the dustbin of history, which is precisely where they belong. And I make no apologies if that offends anybody on this programme who who is a Tory because, um, well, basically. The funny thing is that during the, um, during the election campaign, this will make you laugh. Um, last, a week ago today, I was playing football at Plough Lane. Now, um, you know, you're obviously a lot younger than me, so it might take a bit of explaining. But uh, I have for 40 years on and off, I've released my records and published my books via Cherry Red Records, who are the main sponsors of AFC Wimbledon. Uh, And I know the CEO very well and have done since 1981. And to cut a long story short, you may also know that uh, AFC Wimbledon finally... um, got their new stadium up and running earlier on this year, the new Plough Lane, and sadly got relegated. But at the end of this season, they wanted to celebrate by having the first inaugural Cherry Red Records football match there. So they invited not just everybody who who works for the company, which is many people now, probably 100 people, but also, um, also people who record for the label. Um, and because it's a kind of, in many, most ways, what, you might describe as a sort of heritage label. Uh, it tends to be people of my generation and and, and not that much younger who, who are mainly featured on there. And for various reasons, nobody apart from me actually wanted to play. Um, the idea was there was going to be two matches, 60 minutes for people, you know, who, who are young and play football regularly and 20 minutes for people like me. Um, but I was, I ended up, in tell I'm still sure, I ended up playing 45 minutes against people your age, um, charging around like a blue-ass fly, I cycled loads, I'm um, useless to football, charged around like a blue-ass fly, 
had great fun. Um, then um, came back home to a relieved wife, and then the next, and then in the middle of the night, woke up with both my Achilles tendons on fire, which meant that on election day I had to do the telling. Um, and uh, all the Tories opposite me were all Albion fans who, who were all, you know, um, who were all aware of my role in the campaign to save the club. And it gave us something to talk to, thus keeping the um, keeping the conversation civil and avoiding any sort of minor ruptures, which would got me into trouble with my other half um, because I can be quite volatile. Uh, so that anyway, so I'm sorry that went on a bit, but, you know, it was fun playing at AFC Wimbledon. It was it was it was fun playing on a pitch that, you know, had you know, it was level and everything, you know, because I'm no good, but I used to, I used to play and I, I, I still enjoy occasionally having to kick around, uh, although I was completely out of my depth because many of them were sort of me and league standard. So it was pretty ridiculous for me, but it was fun. Good. And that's all you can ask for. But I'm I'm here for that content. That was, that was brilliant. Uh, and a big congratulations to your wife as well, because, um, you know, a lot of hard work has gone into that campaign and, uh, I'm all yep. for the, the kicking of the uh, the team in blue. I was literally about to say, I'm fully on board with kicking the Tories out. I'll drink to that. And and, <laughs> and, and not it wasn't just that, of course. I mean, it's it's not just the campaign. I mean, she's been doing incredible amounts of very hard work for the last year in a, in an area which has been a fiefdom of theirs for many many years. So and, and the level of neglect and just complete lack of consideration or lack of basically undertaking of of of, of the tasks which you should undertake if you're a councillor. Uh, you know, she's had to, she's having to to right so many wrongs, but at least now she's got a partner who is on the same side rather than someone who will obstruct her, as her predecessor most certainly tried to do. Well, let's hope the future is certainly uh, brighter for. It will. Yeah, it will be. definitely. Oh yeah, fantastic. Um, so, John Attila, um. I like to start these sort of guest appearances with just asking three uh, questions, if I may. They're quite generic questions, but I just um, I feel like they're um, it's ones I'm really interested in. So the first of which is, um, can you remember your first Brighton and Hove Albion game live and in the flesh? Well, the answer to that is sort of. Um, I, I started going in when I was about six, so about 1963. Um, I don't remember the very, very first one. I mean, I, what I do remember, you know, my poem Goldstone Ghost, which is in Dick's Bar. It basically sums it up, really. Um, the first time that I have a conscious memory of something that happened at the football was my dad pointing at somebody and saying, that's Bobby Smith, John. He was playing for Spurs a couple of years ago when they won the double. Um, and me not me understanding what he was saying, and, and at that time it was just all just a big fantastic blurb. So I absolutely loved it, but I didn't realise the full import of this of this fact. And that was the 1964 season, where thanks to Bobby Smith, um, we we won the fourth division. Um, he played for Brighton. Apparently, everyone wondered why. Many many years later, I'm, I'm not certain that this is true, but the the, the rumour goes that the reason he did so was because he was a ga he had a gambling problem and the, he had a bookie in Brighton and the bookie said that he'd write off his gambling debts if he came to play for the Albion. So, I mean, I'm not certain that that's the case, but it's what I've heard. Anyway, so yes, I would say 64. The first time I really remember something absolutely was the was was the first um, mention in, in Goldstone Ghosts, which was when I was eight and we played Chelsea uh, in... in um, in the 19, in, I think it was 1966, in the third round of the FA Cup, and drew two all. And we were in the South Stand, and they were throwing the old, long before your time, the old, large, old pennies uh, at us. 
uh, which when sharpened could actually be quite nasty. But that's my first concrete memory of, of watching the Albion. Wow, that's um, fantastic. And that's just a bit of a nice bit it of a history lesson there is. as well. Um, um, another question I always ask to ask people, and it's a, it's a bit tricky. Um, well, I find I found it tricky when they asked me. Uh, was do you ever have have you ever had like a favourite Brighton player, someone who just speaks to you on a footballing level or a humanitarian level? Is there any players over our history that you just think, yeah, they're good people? Well, um, the one who I would have said that about most definitely was Craig McHale Smith, um, who I who I met when he first signed for the club. Because I mean, you may know that I was stadium announcer and. And and, and, and and everything with Dean and Gillingham. And I just stopped doing that. Um, well, I was retired, really, when we got, to, when we got the new stadium. Um, but I met, I, I was doing something up there and I bumped into Craig McHale Smith and just after he'd signed and I was talking to him and I mean, I'd always known his, his history, where he'd come from, and I'd always really admired the level of commitment that he showed. Um, and I was just saying to him, well, I always say if I talk to a footballer, and I've talked to a few. I always say, you know, we have something in common. We both earn our living doing something we absolutely love. And it's an incredible privilege because most people don't have that opportunity. And whether I'm playing to 10 people or a 1,000, and I have played to both, uh, I give my all the whole time I'm on stage. And the one thing I can't stand is when I'm watching footballers who are paid to play football and they're not trying and they're not fully committed. That's one thing, however crap you are, if you give 100%, that is the very least you can do. And of course, there have been many, not just for the Albion, but for in general, who haven't done that. And I really hate that. And Mikhail Smith was absolutely, he made a huge impression on me, which sadly, he completely more or less evaporated by being, becoming a COVID denier. And, and sadly, what he's been posting on, online about that is um, in terms of on the pitch. Um, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go way off the obvious ones now. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to uh, plump for Darren Curry who played for us at Withding, who was incredibly skilled. He could, he, his ability to construct a pass, his, 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 or do a, or a free kick was just, I mean, I'm not quite sure. You probably saw him play. I mean, would it, I mean, I just absolutely loved that, 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 that absolute intelligence. He was really slow. He couldn't tackle. Um, but he could just do that. And I absolutely loved it. And I mean, it was just one of those, I really like players like that. We've had a few over the years. Dean Wilkins was another one. Um, and, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously in this team, actually, we, you know, the new, obviously we've got Pascal Gross, who's another example of the same thing. Not much pace, not, you know, but, but what he does is he, he can really pass. And he, he, he's, you know, they, they create opportunities there. They're, they're the people that, you know, the, who provide the assists. But Darren Curry, the, one of the worst, you know, during the worst of times. And the other thing was that Darren Curry came on the on the marches and everything. And during the worst of times, um, you know, he was he was one player that, that stuck out for me who, you know, I wouldn't want to be boring and make, mention the obvious ones like obviously Bobby Zamora or whatever, you know. Another one um, further back who you won't have seen was um, uh, Gary Nelson, who was not only really, really good around 1991, he also wrote, he was he was also a very he's a very clever guy is a very clever guy and wrote um two books best foot forward left sorry left foot forward and left foot in the foot in the grave about being basically a, a lower division footballer and all the different things that are involved you know off the pitch um and yeah he, I mean he he was sort of between about eighty seven and ninety one he scored loads of goals for us and he's another player that that wouldn't be considered obvious who I would definitely also put in the same category. 
yes we, really... we've had the um, we've had the privilege to have craig mikhail smith on this show and um I, I also want to just add to what you've said that he he was he was the nicest of guys. Um, he had so much time for us. I think at the time we were we had some sort of tech issue or internet issue as well, and uh, he was just gave us so much time and he was so lovely to us. And uh, during my year as a Brighton fan, um, he's he's the absolute shining light of players that give determination and give their all. So I couldn't agree more with you, John, that, that players that just give their absolute all for the club, play for the badge, play with their heart on their sleeve, they're always the, the best ones. So I couldn't agree with you more with your selections. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing about Mikhail Smith was that he was so impressive, both as a bloke talking about, because, you know, I said to him, you know, we have this privilege, we both earn our living doing what we love. And I knew that he'd started off, you know, in the Ryman League, playing for St Albans City and everything, and then gone to Dagenham, Redbridge and Peterborough. And it, on every level, he was really impressive. And I was really sad when when I saw this stuff he was putting up about COVID. I mean, it just didn't, didn't somehow didn't fit in with someone with, with that level of compassion and, and, and general sort of, you know, and, and general sort of decency. And I was really shocked and sad, but yeah, and it, you know, it, it really disappointed me. Um, so I, I'm basically, apart from that, I think he's great. And hopefully somebody will convince him that he's talking a load of bollocks about that. Cause, cause that really does wind me up because for various reasons, not, not, only because I've got COPD, thanks to uh, 20 years of doing gigs before the smoking ban and uh, inhaling other people's smoke. Although, you know, I cycle about 80 miles a week, so it's not like a, a really bad thing. But, I'm, you know, it's something that I really had to worry about when, when there was no vaccines and everything. And when they were, when there were vaccines, I was champion at the bit to get one, you know. Anyway. Yeah, def definitely. And it's um like, it's, it's, you appreciate, as you say, someone who tries. And I always thought that way about Chris O'Grady. You know, someone who was absolutely uh, not to the standard of um, of our championship squad. However, always gave his gave his all, which was more than you could say about some of the other dross that we've had uh, throughout the years. And uh, maybe Toby and Curtis, you might not uh, remember the with Dean years, uh, but yeah, we had uh, some interesting uh, interesting players. In well, the, the other, if you want the other extreme, of course, is Paddy McCourt, the, one of the most talented players I've ever seen on a football pitch. With the, if you combine the 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 determination and absolute dedication of Craig McHale Smith and the skill of Black Paddy McCall, you'd have a you'd have a world beater. I mean, what what? I mean, the things that he could do were brilliant, but he only did them about when he felt like it, about once every three weeks. Then it was really bad. Yeah, I remember. Was it the Derry Pele they called it? Yeah, the Derry Pele, that's right. Yeah. Derry Pele. Yeah, that's it's, right. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Wait, but talking of which, I know we're going on a bit of a tangent here, but if you want to look at a uh, potentially wasted opportunity, look at no further than Aaron Connolly. Um, yeah. He's a skillful player, no doubt about it. There's got to be a skillful player in there somewhere. But unfortunately, it feels like he plays for himself, so... Another, another one another one was Leon Knight, of course. I'm sure you remember him. Uh he he had incredibly skillful player, but but well, basically an awful attitude to the game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kind of couldn't agree with that more. Um one last question for the, the generic three, John, and then we can like chat about other things. Um, I like a good football shirt, me. Um, I'm a bit of a collector of Brighton shirts. I'm always keen to get my hands on new and uh or old I, I, you've got you've got you've got my second favorite brighton shirt right behind you there the Which knobbo one? shirt but the, yeah. but i prefer the pink knobbo one 
Pink, well, I've, got that. I've got that as well. It's my favourite ever Brighton shirt because in, in that, at that time, um, you know, I mean, obviously there was homophobia and uh, it was really quite, it was extremely funny. Uh, and it was obviously, but what I loved about it most was the responses that we gave. I mean, obviously homophobia in football is totally unacceptable. Um, however, not however, um, but the only redeeming feature was the way that we could absolutely wind everybody up um, by turning this expectation of being insulted into uh you know turning it on its head and informing them that he was over there or behind them or you know uh, you know all the other things that we used to sing yeah. lead the way being the very best ones you know we we're gay and we've beaten you and uh you know all the, all the rest of it you know but it's really good that that has stopped and you know all that nonsense is just you know i mean that's that's fantastic um, and well done to everybody who's campaigned against it. Well done to Whitehall. Uh, the, the other thing you may know about me is that when the Albion aren't playing, uh, I am an occasional uh, Whitehall ultra, and I, I love that. I love the attitude there as well. They're brilliant. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I've, I said, I've got the the pink one as well. Um, and I think, as you've rightfully pointed out, you know, football has come a long, long way. Uh, still, obviously, uh, steps to be taken um, to eradicate, you know, homophobia, racism sexism as well um but you know I, mean, I can tell you from when i started watching in the 60s it you know the n-word and and that that all that stuff was just completely endemic and it was just accepted that you know i always i i would never joined in but it was you know it was something that was just accepted that it was part of banter you know um race sexuality whatever it was just banter and of course there's still a few dinosaurs who think that now uh and uh, you know it just i mean hopefully uh, you know, uh, it will die out as, uh, frankly, as my generation dies out because it is, it tends to be the over 50s that are still, you know, sadly the ones who are getting most into, who are most likely to be involved in this nonsense. Yeah, it's a, it's an unfortunate side effect of, uh, I hate that you get, you, you said that word banter, people behind hiding behind that word. Mm, it's a horrible word. Just, banter, you know, it's, a, it's a completely bollocks word. Um, you know, it's it's nonsense. It's, it's an yeah, excuse it's, for for yeah. being for being a, an arsehole. Am I allowed to use words like arsehole and bollocks? Is that yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't used them already. You know, I mean, this is the man who once composed a satirical piece entitled "How to Say Penis" on a local radio station, uh, which was um, <laughs> which was then banned because I said penis. And this was a long time ago, um, but it was uh, it was quite funny. Anyway, carry on. Everything, everything you mentioned there is exactly what we stand for on the podcast as well, and we reiterate it week in, week out. So, thank yeah. you for doing our job for us this week. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and also, just to say, people who uh, say it's a joke or banter, they clearly just aren't very funny people if they need to joke about that sort of stuff. Yeah, so, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it shows a lack of decorum, lack of intelligence, um, and hopefully, as you say, you know that will be eradicated soon. Um, but that was my third. That was actually my third question. What is your favourite shirt? And you've uh, you answered that um, with the pink one, which is uh, one of my favourites as well. I put that on Twitter. Someone asked about, oh, what what's our uh, next away shirt going to be? And I put the pink one. And Ryan Adset was like, no, it's disgusting. I was like, what planet are you? I mean, on? I mean, can I can I just point something out? I've only worn black since since the late eighties, so I would never wear any of the shirts. The one shirt that I do wear. Well, I have worn occasionally is the is the is the other one you've got there, the red and black one, because red, red and black, as you can see, are are my colours, but mainly black. 
Um, but yeah, there are others which which I wouldn't wear, but I do think are quite funny. And that one was brilliant because obviously nobody nobody obviously thought of of, of the implications of it like the people who like the germans who thought the acronym smeg would make a good uh, or make a good uh, sort of um uh, you know a, a good trademark for for white goods i mean you know so uh, so you get your local smeg regis- smeg distribution center and all this sort of thing and obviously you know i mean um well <laughs> say no more yeah. What, an, what an excellent tangent to go down, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Did, yeah. Talk, talking of wearing pink, didn't we have a goalkeeper kit that was pink? One yeah. Time? The goalkeeper had to change at half time because the Sheffield Wednesday fans were giving him so much grief. Now, I remember it was. I remember Kuipers wearing the pink shirt at Leeds. I'm, I'm certain. Um, we may have all been wearing it. I remember Leeds and, and the pink shirt. Leeds was always the the favourite place for giving back the homophobic abuse. Especially because we, we we over the years we've tended to beat them at Ellen Road more times than they've beaten us, which makes it especially fun. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, nothing nothing better than uh, rubbing someone's face in it figuratively, of course. Um, so, John, you've alluded to your your history as a Brighton fan, um, coming to the games and going to the games in the sixties. Um, the three of us, myself, Curtis, and Toby, we're nineties babies. Um, as it were. So, you know, we we discuss a lot of the things that happened in the 90s, um, most of which I was very young for, so I didn't get to experience, um, you know, firsthand properly. Now, the 90s, it's no secret to anyone, was, uh, especially the early 90s, were a very dark time in our club's history. And you were a huge part um, of... The, the 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 change for good as it were so i'd love to just get your your views on that early part of the 90s where archer and balotti were destroying our club and we were the fans were fighting um to get them out and fighting for you know to keep their home as it were so i'd love to just you know get your thoughts on that i'm sure you've told the stories millions of times before um but i just love to to hear it from you know the horse's mouth as it were yeah i mean for me football was always a Football was always a um, uh, a hobby. It was my more than a hobby. It was my release. You know, there I am. I started in ninety. I was in punk bands in the seventies. Nineteen eighty, I started as a tiller, the stockbroker, charging around, doing loads of gigs, involved in all kinds of of political stuff as well. I lived in a kind of, you know, basically a sort of a left wing ghettoy kind of punk rock world. And football, specifically the Albion, but football generally. Um, was the place in my life where I met people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, you know, all political views. And I loved that. It's just something, one of the things I loved about the game from when I started getting into it was I met people at football that I would never have met anywhere else. And of course, when we realised what was happening, it was 1993 when I jumped up on the on the dugout and unilaterally declared the existence of Brighton Independent Supporters Association. Uh, and before that, I'd written, a, I'd written, there is a stench of decomposing flounder in the air in our club fanzine Gullseye, which had got us a, a, a lawsuit from, from John Campbell. We had to raise a load of money for that. And it was obvious in the 90s that things were going totally pear-shaped because of the long contracts of the players after the, the decline in the 80s after the cup final and relegation and everything. And so we took them on. Everybody knows the story. There's no point in. But for me personally, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, you know, I was very, I had been and still am very involved in, you know, in, in, in political activity, shall we say, in protests and all the rest of it. 
and um and the Albion was a kind of a release but when I saw all the things that I loathed in society happening to the football club the most natural thing in the world was for me to take my my activism outside of, of the game into the game and I made no bones about my politics and I, I certainly didn't demand that everybody agreed with me um all, what we did was we said you know, we don't care what your politics are um we don't care what what your you know, background is we don't care how old you are we don't care what what sex what gender you are whatever all we care about is that you support the lb and you'll get involved to save the club and that you know visa had no you know we didn't have a formal structure we said it was a narco syndicalist collective we didn't have a chairman or a, or a minute secretary we didn't have members or subscriptions we just we, we were just a group of people who met at the concord and this was right in the early days when there was when when we didn't have dick knight it was just us against the board against the board you know we met up at the concord we decided what we were going to do and then we did it uh, and um, and it just evolved from there. And, and I've, I'll always say, as someone who's been involved in, you know, in all kinds, you know, from the minor strike to the whopping dispute to, you know, uh, Rock Against Racism, all the stuff that I've been involved in through my whole life, that the Brighton, the campaign to save the Elbin is the most successful, wide ranging, all encompassing grassroots campaign that I've ever been involved in. And people, you know, because I write, actually wrote a song saying, you know, called Only Football about people saying, well, it's only football. But the fact is that it isn't only football. It, it's about people coming together to save an edifice, a, a something, a creation, a fact of life in their lives that they love, that they are that they are determined to keep. Um, and they see it being ripped away by bluntly by the worst aspects of the economic system of capitalism. And that's the only way, you know, you don't have to be a lefty to, to when, 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 um, when, when uh, Bill Archer said to me, I own this club, lock, stock and barrel. There's nothing you half brains can do about it. Sorry about the invitation, Northern accent. Um, but, uh, you know, and that just summed it up. And he genuinely thought that because we were Southerners and we were Brighton fans, that, that, that he could wreck our club and that we wouldn't do anything. Uh, because we were southern softies or whatever you know and the people in the north are the real football well he he found something <laughs> he found out you know we, we, when i was standing on his wall playing the fiddle uh he, you know with, with the 2000 two, sorry 200 of us marching through his village and all the rest of it he found out he found out the hard way shall we say and you know and i mean one of the things that i say now is i mean i have retired um you know i made it quite clear i made it quite clear to the nsk when we got to to felma that, that that i was you know that i was stepping down and then it was up to them if they wanted to to take on the man the, the mantle of um of being if you like of the the visa mantle but they didn't want to uh, and that's fair enough um there's this new focus group as i would call it um starting up now with elected fans on the board um well <laughs> Well done for, to Brighton and Nova Albion for having the initiative. Um, for me, it's a bit like goal music, which we don't have. It's a bit like the manufactured, you know, fan zone thing beforehand. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I am very old school in my um, in my attitude to fan to, to fan collectivism, and I don't really think it could be manufactured in that way. But but you know, a focus group is basically a good idea, and it shows that they that you know it shows that the board are absolutely trying to connect in a different way to the way because I've still got you know I still have a if I want I can still say things and I'm listened to but I I don't really want to anymore I've you know we've we've done we've we, I've done that I've, I've I'm you know I'm so proud of where we are 
I find modern football intensely irritating. I loathe the ridiculous amounts of money in the game. I loathe the ridiculous salaries and transfers fees in a world and a country where so many people are living in poverty. I loathe the ridiculous, you know, different times and matches are going to be when it's not just for me as a performance poet musician who has gigs in the evenings and needs to know more than six weeks in advance when they're going to be, but for everybody who works and has a family, you know, it's just like, you know, obviously it's the television. You know, we, you know, you know the score. But I'm really proud of where we came from and I'm really proud of, of what we've done. And I will tell you, having been very involved in it, that this film, um, you know, the, the, which is coming up soon, Stand or Fall, all I can say is from what I've seen, from my from the, the, the questions that I was asked, I mean, I got to talk about existentialism, you know. And if I get to talk about existentialism in a, in a film about football, um, you know, and playing Stockhausen over the PA with Dean, then that's good. That's that's good. Oh, that was great. Um, so I think we can all look forward to it for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, that film, I mean, the trailer looks fantastic. And I think, you know, the Brighton fans are rightfully very excited uh, yeah. to yeah. see it. Um, and Toby, you, you know, you've chatted very similar to Attila, what you just said about the existentialism and, and football um and its future. You've chatted a lot about this that on this podcast, haven't you, mate? You've you know you've made your views you know very clear on. So yeah, many- I, I mean, we've gone round in circles over and over, and I could say everything that you've just said, John. I'm, I'm not going to repeat it, but um, as someone who is practically only grown up with modern football, as as a, a youngster, I, I don't class myself as it. I still, I feel old myself, but as a 24 year old. Um, I've only grown up with modern football, you know, practically since birth. We've been hearing more and more about record transfers every other season. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, it's it's ultimately led to, unfortunately, me and my granddad having to cancel our season tickets this year because with the changing fixtures, we just can't make all the games. You know, eight o'clock on a boxing day, that sort of thing. Uh, we just can't make all the games. That uh, doesn't make us any less Brighton supporters, I'd, I'd like to say. Um, but yeah, no, just just absolutely against the the modernization of football um one thing i did want to ask as well you know all of your hard work to get belotti and archer out like just how satisfied does is that feeling like i can't imagine a feeling more satisfactory than just knowing that your hard work paid off to the absolute maximum to where we are now to tony bloom owning the club just just how good is it well, I mean, you know, obviously, I've, you've, you, have you heard my poem from Hereford to here? I guess you must have done. I mean, obviously, and you've seen the documentary, the, the little one that they did in The Guardian. Um, yeah, it's a thing of you. I mean, you know, I mean, it is, obviously, when I start, when, when, when we started, we, I mean, I, the funny thing is, when I wrote Goldstone, I mean, I came back from the pub really quite pissed um, a couple of days before, a few days before the, the last game of the Goldstone. And I wrote Goldstone Ghosts in about three quarters of an hour. And the second last verse, you know, the battle's only just begun, but we have won the war. Our club, though torn asunder, will survive. Because at that point, of course, we just know that Archer, that Dick Knight was going to get a majority, where we would have a majority of the shares. And I salute each one of you who stood up and said no and fought to keep the Albion alive. And one day when our new home's built and we are storming back, a bunch of happy fans without a care will look back on our darkest hour and raise our glasses high and say with satisfaction, we were there. And I wrote that on about the 
20th of April 1997, where we knew that we had to win at least one of the last two games and other people had to lose to have any chance of staying in the Football League and that we were not going to be playing at the Goldston the following season. I, I knew that we would come back because I'd already seen around me so much passion, not just passion, but so much diversity and intelligence and different skills that people had to actually some, you know, I mean, the, the, to sum it up, you've got me and Paul Samra, you've got, a, you, you know, you've got, a, you've got a, an accountant uh, and, and, a, and a punk poet sort of effectively being two of the, of, of, of the main sort of spearhead of, of the Independent Supporters Association. And that just summed it up. There's, there was every conceivable type of person there who could help. And so many different people with so many different talents and skills. And, you know, and this was, of course, before, more or less, it was. But, but yeah, that time, it was before the internet as well. So imagine just how difficult it was compared to how it would have been now. Because obviously, later on, when we had the things like the campaign for the single in 2004, um, you know, it was kind of, well, I was thinking, this is easy. You just put stuff up on North Stand Chat and, people, and you, you know, spread it around on, 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 on the internet. And then people go and buy the record. And it's just great. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, what it has been, and it remains one of the most satisfying things that I've ever been involved in. I'm very proud of my involvement in it. Um, I've tended now to, I've, you know, we, it's not something that needs to be talked about all the time now. It's something that doesn't need to be talked about all the time. And it's something that doesn't, that should never be forgotten. That's, I mean, I, I can talk the high leg off a donkey and I'm quite upfront, you know, and I, I'm sort of confident and all the rest of it. Um, and I'm very much aware that I could talk about this forever. And but I don't want to anymore. It's kind of, you know, we've moved on from that now. And, and, and rightly so. We should be where we are. But we are different. And we are different because of that. We're, and we're also different because of where we are, because of the p p part of the country we come from, which brings its own culture and its own traditions. And at this time when, you know, when, when the political world is turning on its head, when Bolsover's you know, Bolsover Council is Tory and, and uh, Worthing's gone Labour, you know, it's kind of, it reflects a difference. It reflects a difference, in, you know, in the way that things are developing. Um, not a bad difference or a good difference. Things are changing and things should change. I mean, one of the problems I have with people of a generation is that so many people don't want things to change. They listen to the music they listened to 40 years ago. They want everything to be the same with the football that it was 40 years ago. They want, you know, they get more set in their ways and more right-wing as they get older. And I'm thinking, what is all this about? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still... I mean, I'm listening to Radio 6 and, and Spotify and everything, trying to find really good new music. And to be honest, you know, having been there and done it and got the T-shirt, thinking to myself, yeah, that's not bad, but it still sounds like a sort of a fairly weak version of what we did 40 years ago. Occasionally, stuff like Bob Villain will come along, uh, which is just absolutely bust, bust through everything. I mean, people say, well, what about idols? And I'm saying, well, I mean, for start, they're not very young. And actually, you know, they're... they're probably one of the most overrated bands in the world. I'm um, not bad, um, but, you know, anyway, I'm, dig I'm dig digressing again. Um, all I'm saying is that I'm really proud of what we did, but, it, you know, in the main now, it's time to move on, but we must always have it in the background as something, it's where we came from. And the great thing about this film is I think the film will be kind of the 25th anniversary. It will be the summation of the whole thing, you know. Um, yeah. Definitely, it will absolutely sum it up. So for people of your age, you will be able if you all the bits that you because obviously I'm I'm sure most 
Albion obsessed people will know about what happened, whatever age you are, whether you're 15 or 70, you're going to know about it. There's two sorts of people now. There's the people that just, who just consume, uh, you know, I mean, the people of my age who used to support Man U, uh, you know, in their fake shirts. Oh, I've always been an Albion fan, you know, and, and obviously the people much, much younger who've just come into, oh, we're in the Premier League, you know, we're, we're this, we're that, you know, who the people, I mean, you know, one one of the things that I've always said was so fantastic about what we've done is that I live just off Southwick Green, and you know, in the nineties, they all the kids there were wearing you know, Liverpool, Man U, whatever tops, and, and and AFC Southwick, the team which I've been trying to help recently. You may have heard about that as well. Um, you know, all the players of AFC Southwick who are all obviously you know about your age, um, they all support Man U or Liverpool or whatever because when we were growing up. When they were growing up, we were absolutely rubbish. And you had to be a really dedicated character at primary school to say, I'm a Brighton fan. I mean, I was would have been, well, I was exactly one of those people. But then I've always liked to be different. And I've always stood up for myself. But if, you, if you're someone who just wants to be fit in, then, you know. Um, so in, in general, I'm waffling. But in general, absolutely incredibly proud uh, and conscious now that, you know, that it's time to, in the main, to shut up about it because we've done it and it's part of the past. But when I'm invited onto something like this, or when I'm invited on to, to be part of that film or whatever, then of course I'll still talk about it because, you know, you've got a whole new generation of people that haven't heard the story. And the fact that my generation can sometimes get a bit sick of hearing it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be told because people your age need to hear it, you know, and people younger than you need to hear it. And, you know, it needs to be told over and over again. And then it needs to be handed down as part of our collective consciousness. Completely and that's why agree. Yeah. You know, that's the point. So it's not something, I mean, there is a, one of the things that I found a, a little bit sad uh, in terms of the, the new direction of the board was that they were, for a time, in my view, trying to downplay it a bit too much. So the sort of upward mobility, a bit like Hyacinth Bucket, you know, here we are with our brand new togs on. And I know they probably maybe a bit a generational the, 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 a woman from a very work, very much like my own personal background. People who are from very working class backgrounds trying to pretend that they're, you know, that they're posh. Um, uh, you know, same sort of thing. To, I was thinking to a degree a bit ago, um, but absolutely come back the right way now, acknowledging everything completely and um you know i think this is going to be a brilliant film and i think it will literally be the almost the, the closing of the chapter the definitive statement that's never really been made we've all done the little bits we've all done the there's been the documentary on on the guardian there's obviously there's been bits and pieces all over the place but i think this will tie it all together and that yeah. and then it will stand for the rest of for the rest of time as long as Putin and climate change doesn't destroy us all, uh, it'll stand for the rest of time for, for future generations. Well, this is what happened to our club, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's a really nice way to put it. I think, um, I think especially as a younger fan, I say I grew up in the 90s when the last game of the Goldstone, I, I said it on the pre, a previous podcast, I remember the news coverage. Um, and I knew How old it was... You then? I'm 32. So in 97, I would have been seven or eight. Yeah. Um, and then... I remember it being on the news and I remember it being important, but I don't fully understand it. But it's funny you yeah, talk yeah. about shirts. Um, I went, I used to play for Haywards Heath Town and I remember going to the training um, in 99, 2000 with my skin shirt on and getting laughed at by the other kids. And yeah, 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 yeah. As you say, they were all in their Manchester United shirts, their Arsenal shirts or what have you, and there's me in my skint Brighton shirt. Um, but 
proud as punch um, to wear Absolutely. it. So you should be. Yeah, definitely. So let's um, let's chat a bit. I want to just talk about really brief about those Priestfield years um, because I suppose we we talk a lot about you know the Goldstone, the Hereford game, and then sort of we've got these two years where Brighton were playing at home in Gillingham, um, and you were the stadium announcer and the DJ as you as you have alluded to. Um, what was it like for those two seasons, like to play home games in Gillingham um, and having a what 150 mile round trip? Well, what happened was, it's a very funny story. Um, what happened was, the first game at Gillingham, I, I was there with Dick Knight, and the Gillingham announcer was a guy called Ken, Ken Brown, I believe. He was a folk singer. He said, now welcome Brighton and Oval. And, and it was just the most soulless, you know. So I said, Dick, we got to have something better than that. And you know, I could. Do, how about a friendly voice from home? I got gigs, but I could, I can, I can sort it out to be able to do the PA. Um, and he said, "John, that's a brilliant idea." So we told he told the the, the Gillingham announcer who was overjoyed to not have to do it. Um, and I was ensconced in the PA box um, with my with my records, obviously my punk rock. So there was immediately a Phil Collins band, punk ska and reggae, a little bit of Stockhausen occasionally, a bit of Welsh language hip hop now and again, or um, you know um, that sort of thing. Um, and um, the problem was, well, it was a nice problem. The problem was that I tended to get to the ground about half past 12, go to the Roseneath, which was a purveyor of very fine ale in those days, have four or five pints, and then go to the ground to do the PA. Now, of course, there were two problems with, with that. Um, because I'm confident and experienced as a performer, I could certainly do the announcing and all the rest of it very well. But there was the problem that I would get a full bladder and I could maybe not be there for the most important moments if I wasn't careful. So after a while, I, I um, after a couple of moments where that happened, I asked my friend Paul Samra, my comrade arms Paul Samra, to join me. And that's then that bit of history was made. And... Um, and it was completely surreal because obviously we were terrible, uh, absolutely dreadful. The um, you know the, the where we were was if Kent is the Garden of England, then then Priestfield is the then then Gillingham's the the, the compost heap, and the Priestfield Stadium is the outside toilet. Um, and it was just horrendous. And of course, the reasons we were there, the whole thing, um, the first season where we, where where the only team worse than us was. Doncaster, who'd got a, a chairman that burnt down the, the stand. Remember Robinson? We chased him out of, of, of an away game at uh, Doncaster Rovers. They were bottom of the league. They had a pub team. We were second bottom of the league. We had the heart of football, the second Fancy United game. Obviously, the first one um, it was, at, it was at the Goldstone uh, in that last season. The second one playing Donny. Um, and, and, and it was on, on Valentine's Day, the heart of football, you know, a love, a loving, we, a national loving for, for football in, in crisis. I think some, one of the many things we called it. So, and it was the worst game I've ever seen. It was, I mean, you know, we had, we had, we, I mean, Andy Ansar, I mean, you know, I mean, oh, crikey, Michael Mahoney Johnson. I mean, the names, the, the, the memories, the ineptitude, the asininity. The, the people that are the, the, oh, the hooves, the, the long ears, the carrots, the eel, eel, eels. Um, and, um, and there was Doncaster Rovers with an enormous goalkeeper who's about four stone overweight. And it was, it was just ridiculous. Um, and, but the, 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 the most, the funniest story, the funniest story. Have you heard the, the Sex Pistols story? Have you heard about that? 
I think I might have done, but retell it anyway, John. Go on. Because um, it is it is really, really funny. So it was Colchester United away. Um, sorry, Colchester United at home. Uh, I'll, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I, I'll... Um... I'll read it. I'll read it from my autobiography. Amazing. This is the best way. Because it is... It is one of the funniest things that's ever happened to me. It's not, there's a whole chapter called Building a Bonfire. The last chapter in my autobiography is about the story of, you know, the battle to save the Alpin. Um, so this is me. It's Boxing Day. Um, and uh, and we're at home to, to Colchester United and the kickoff is at, at midday. The tunes I've been playing pre-match have been going down well with the Albion fans I talked to. And the whole idea of playing music that was as energetic as possible to try and create some sort of pre-match atmosphere in a home ground 70 miles away was a hit with Dick Knight and the club. It was an early kickoff on Boxing Day. We were bumping around second from bottom of the whole football league with a team perhaps even worse than the one we'd had the previous season. We'd obviously had to set off really early to get to Gillingham in time for the game after Christmas Day, and everyone was a bit bleary-eyed. So for the first time, I decided to play Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. It had been on for about a minute when a policeman burst into the box. Take that off! Take that off! Now! Why? I asked. But I could see that he was really angry, so I did, and I put the clash on instead. You can't play that record at a football match! It's banned. It's on the list. What list? I asked. No one has ever told me there was a list of records I couldn't play. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? He shouted. It's obvious. I stood there, the clash playing in the background, perplexed. It evidently wasn't obvious to me. The fact that he needed to explain further made him even more angry. It incites violence in the crowd. I thought for a few seconds. Well, officer, I said. I bought two copies of Anarchy in the UK in the black sleeve on EMI Records on the day that it came out in 1976 from the independent music shop in Canterbury High Street while I was at the University of Kent. I have played it and heard it many, many times since, not once as doing so given me violent thoughts of any kind whatsoever. I've also been to all 92 football league grounds. And every time I've heard In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, I've had to restrain myself from committing serious acts of criminal damage. He didn't get the joke. And a couple of days later, Brighton Over Albion Football Club received a formal letter from Kent Police banning me from doing the PA at Gillingham any longer. Dick Knight phoned me up. I'm not having that, John. He spoke to them and the ban was rescinded on condition that I didn't play Anarchy in the UK again. So I didn't. I did play Smash It Up by The Damned and I Fought the Law and White Riot by The Clash in the next couple of weeks. No policemen appeared in the box. Obviously, those three weren't on the list so there you go fantastic it's so so good things that's ever happened to me at a football match because i had been to all 92 football league grounds by that time because obviously brian been in all four divisions and there'd been many occasions when my work had taken me to places where i couldn't watch the Albion because obviously gigs don't always fit around the fixture list so i'd obviously gone to see the local team one of them wherever i'd been and i did without even trying without doing anything train spotteresque at all by that time i'd been to all 92 league grounds and i had heard uh, in the air tonight an awful lot and i really catch probably my least favorite song ever in the world ever so there you go 
but I, I actually wanted to ask you something uh, because you've sort of touched on your connection with with punk music. How did you find yourself in what I refer to as the murky mire that is punk rock? How did I find how did I find myself in it? Yeah, how did how did you how did you uh, how did that come into your life? How was that a, a factor for you? It was the most natural thing in the world. I grew up um oh, when I started writing little poems and songs when I was a little kid. My dad died when I was 10. Um and um and I grew up basically with a great love of words and strange words and by the time I was 11 or 12 I was seriously into T the Tyrannosaurus Rex and T-Rex. And one time I and by the time and but I was also really into sort of alternative music just instinctively. And the Velvet Underground, Nico, the first Velvet album was the third album I bought when I was 14 years old. And I don't know how much, I mean, I, I hope there isn't a generational sort of understanding problem when I talk about the Velvet Underground, because in my opinion, they are the most influential band in the entire history of rock music. And so, and, and I just happened to actually absolutely love them quite independently when they weren't well known at all. It's just something that happened and it sounds pretentious or whatever, but believe you me, um, it wasn't. That's just what happened. And I, from that, I went into in people like Mott the Hoople and MC5. And when punk happened, it was the most natural thing in the world for me. And I was I went to university when I was 17 in 1975. I was immediately involved in putting on gigs with the Entertainment's Committee. And of course, punk happened. So we literally put on, we put on the jam before anyone had heard of them. We put the Stranglers on when they were called the Silk of the Guildford Stranglers. We put on you know, the adverts when hardly anyone had heard of them. I mean, all the all the early bands we put on. And I just loved it. And I obviously I was a bass player and taught myself to play the bass. I was a bass player. And then, you know, and then um, obviously I was also writing poems and, and, and little songs. And then I realized that you couldn't actually be a punk bass player and be the front. It's, it is actually impossible to sing and play the bass at the same time, unless you're Paul McCartney or that bloke from level 42 uh, and uh, or Tom Robinson. Um, and so I, I got the mandolin and I started started jumping on stage in between bands doing poems and, and and the, the the main thing about punk rock for me was I always said it, it's an attitude of mind, um, not a, not the noise you make. Because the main thing about punk rock for me was, it, it, you know, the the, it, the idea that you were independent, that you, you no no longer because I grew and you know, I grew up with the sort of the old hippie thing. You had to get signed, man. You had to get a deal. You know, you had to wait for people to come and discover you. And the whole idea of punk was you go do it yourself, put out your own records, publish your own books. And because I've always been really confident, so I've always been. I have huge self-belief and I'm incredibly confident. It was the most natural thing in the world. And it's something that I could do quite easily. So I did. And and so and I love the music. Obviously, The Clash are my favourite band of all time. When I saw the I always say I saw The Clash in May 1977 at the Rainbow, and I knew exactly what I, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And then a bit tiny bit later, I saw John Cooper Clark, um, the, the the great punk poet, um, at a gig, and I knew how I wanted to do it. And that was that basically for me. And it has been ever since. And it's never I've 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 gone from then, you know, to now, literally earning my living doing what I love. And the only difference now is that I can't stay up all night and have and have nine pints and do um, ten I've got a, a fourteen I've got a sixteen date tour coming up in mainland Europe, the first one since COVID and Brexit bollocks. And I'm thinking to myself, I've really got to have a couple of days off now. I'm 64. I can't actually do this to sort of, you know. but, um, you know, so I'm having a couple of days off, but I'm going out there and, you know, and as I say, I mean, I love it. And, and yeah, punk for me, it's not, it's not a fashion. It wasn't the people who say, oh, punk was something that happened in between 1977, 1978. 
That's nonsense. I mean, that what what that is, if that's the same as the people who say to me, oh, I didn't know you were still going because I was on the front cover of Moody Maker in 1983 and I was on the telly quite a lot. And it's kind of, you know, what happened in that period was the mainstream media took an interest in it. It didn't mean it stopped when that, when that mainstream media interest went away. It meant it turned into something else, something in many ways far more valid and far more important because it was truly underground and was no longer, you know, infested with people, you know, what to what to wear in with the sun. So what you wear if you're a punk rocker, you get, you know, and it's like, ugh. the whole idea of punk is you don't do what you're told and you don't have the mainstream media telling you what you're supposed to be thinking. Anyway, I'm, yeah. I mean, that's what I've always loved about punk because punk's sort of permeated my life from for as long as I can remember. I'm a big like Dead Kennedys fan. Um, so tell I, me, tell, tell me of your generation, who is your favourite band? right now you're of your age per, per, oh, of my age currently uh i i only listen to stuff like um devo and motorhead and things like that anyway right right see, I, I, so yeah. you, what you do is when you say that you make it, it encourage it, it sort of gives me a bit of of of, of sort of, i feel pleased that because i the one thing i don't want to ever want to do is 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 either be taken for or feel like um somebody who's living in the past or whatever but at the same time i love music and if our music really was better um then and i think it was frankly but i'm not i, I need other people of your age to tell me that you think it, it was too other, so i don't feel like an idiot i mean i do think that bob villain is the most exciting thing i've heard for years so if you haven't heard bob villain it's it's punk grime two-piece unbelievable oh, wow. okay. Two, two black guys doing doing punk grime. It's phenomenal. Really political, really angry. You know, that, I mean, the King Blues were brilliant as well. I don't know if you've heard of them. Sadly, uh -huh. got himself up a bit of a gum tree for other reasons. But the music was brilliant. And there's been, there's been quite a lot over the years. I mean, you know, um, and there's, I mean, there's some great stuff. I mean, people like Jess Silk now, I mean, who are, you know, younger than you. I mean, there's loads and loads of good sort of folky stuff and good sort of political poetry around. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, carry on. Yeah, but it's, it's, mu it's the, sorry, sorry, Tom. Sorry, no, go, it's, go, the, go, it's go. the music to me that can tell a story and 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 uh, and just deliver a, a message. I mean, I remember one of the earliest things I ever heard was some uh, Blockheads, Ian during the Blockhead stuff. Yeah, and I'm a massive, massive fan of their music. And I remember just hearing these stories that that Ian Jury was 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 telling and just being so amazed by this. And then later on, listening to things like the Clash and listening to those messages that were. That were being told to me and i was like yeah this is really important stuff I'm the, whole point, the whole point about punk and the whole point about my obviously i know it um for me you know a song is for me it's 50 percent. i mean obviously some of what i do is unaccompanied uh but if, if i'm using music then a song is 50 percent the music and 50 percent the words and to not bother about the lyrics and concentrate on the tune to me is complete nonsense i mean it's like the yes you know the song the structure of the song if you're writing a conventional sort of you know, tuneful song, then it needs to be really good. But it, but whatever you're doing, the words matter, you know, and obviously they don't matter for quite a lot of people, which is why you do get some really good tunes where the words are just total bollocks. I mean, you know. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's what happens when I turn on uh, Radio 1 sometimes on my yeah, way to work. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm glad you brought up music, though, Curtis, um, because I'm going to now ask you, John, about uh, your Seagull Scar. Now, I'm a massive Scar head. I used to be in a Scar band in the uh, right. in the mid-noughties when third wave uh, Scar revival was like the cool thing. And so you, were, so you, you used to hang around with people like Cap Down and, and, um, and, yeah. and Night Year and all that lot, yeah? yeah. Cap Down was my first gig. Play, uh, went to see them at the Concord too. Um, right, right, that, cool, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. But all those, all those days with a punk a bunker. I did a gig with the, with the singer at a Light Year in in um, 
Cornwall a couple of weeks ago, actually. Did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Did he still yeah, get naked? Yeah, I mean that 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 it was. Yeah, I mean I'm a huge car fan too. I mean I've just I've actually I've actually just finished a dub poetry album, something I never thought I would do. But I got a really good producer who, again, is your age, uh, and uh, he's actually the son of a friend of mine who's a brilliant reggae producer. Just been working in Jamaica at the Big Fish Studio with Livel Thompson and Freddie McGregor, and he just provided me some great dub tracks, and I've, I've just done a dub poetry album. So yeah, I mean I'm a, I'm a huge. So what happened with this with with Seagull Scar? Um, we obviously this was a time when we were trying, it was absolutely in the middle of the campaign for the new stadium, and we were trying to think of anything that we could that would in, that would get national media coverage. And basically, I was away at Ipswich, we were away at Ipswich, and I think we were winning, and they equalized and they played Tom Hart. Now, the Piranhas, I used to go and watch, they were the very first Brighton punk band. Um, that I saw, one of the very first that existed. Um, I used to watch them at the Vault, which was, which in itself is an amazing story, under the Presbyterian Church Hall in North Road, an actual literal burial vault where we used to have gigs with coffins and skeletons coming out of the wall. And I used a lead babe, a lead coffin as a, as a cash box once, a little baby's lead coffin. I mean, surreal stuff. Anyway, so the Piranhas were playing there and I used to follow them and they, you know, they had this hit with Tom Hart, which wasn't their song. It's an old Quayler song, uh, in 1978. Uh, and uh, and it was taken up by you know by sports people the da 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 da, da and used for football and uh, and I always found it irritating when it was played against us because you know it's a Brighton song uh, and I just had this idea suddenly I thought hang on a minute I could rewrite the lyrics and we could turn it into a Brighton a, a campaign song to get the new stadium. So I went to Bob Grover, who I knew very well, the singer of the Piranhas, who co-wrote it. Obviously, he wrote the words. He said, no. I said, do you want to do this, mate? Because the first thing to do is find out, does he want to do it? And he didn't want to do it. He said, do you mind if I do it? He said, no, no, go ahead. Be my guest. Uh, so then I, I got my band, Barnstormer, and mates of mine, uh, Too Many Crooks, uh, were well up for doing it. Too Many Crooks being a really good ska band. He likes ska. You've probably heard Too Many Crooks already. Um, really, you know, cookie, you know, great, great bunch of lads as well. So, um, so then what happened was, of course, serendip serendip serendipitously, serendipitously at the time, uh, Skin was our main sponsor. So I went to Midfield General, um, aka Damien Harris, who uh, actually used to be the manager of a, of a punk band called The Infested when I was at the University of Kent that we used to put on as part of our Kent, Kent Rock Gets Racism gigs. And I gave him the idea and he thought it was absolutely brilliant. So we went in the studio and recorded it. And um, I, because I've got a very good mate called John Otway, who's already had auto-produced hits um, with, with, a, with, with a fan base that would just go out on the right time to buy it. I knew the best time to release it would be straight after Christmas when absolutely no other bugger was putting out records. Um, so we did. And it was just at the time when the internet was beginning to get going. North Stand Chat was obviously going. Um, so we, we basically told everybody what they needed to do. And I was quite proud of it. I mean, you know, I mean, people had mixed views about it as a record, but the idea to get the publicity was fantastic. Uh, so we all bought it at the right time. We got to number 17 in the charts. And if they hadn't run out, skint ran out of copies, we'd have gone even higher the following week. But they sold out. They didn't think it was going to sell anywhere near as many. So they hadn't printed enough. So it sold out. And... Um, and it was just amazing. I mean, obviously, we got huge amounts of national media coverage everywhere. Um, and uh, and it, the most important thing was, A, that it really raised the profile of the campaign. And B, it raised about two grand at a time when we had no money at all. It raised about two grand to keep the club going as well. You know, so, 
Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, and the, the, the I mean, to this day, roll up for the Donkey Derby, the the B side. Um, I, that's the one that I I'd written that earlier. Actually, I wrote that in 1990 when Palace got to Wembley. Um, but obviously, we did a re, a, a remix of it, and uh, and it was great. I mean, it, you know, uh, some people liked it, some people didn't, but it was a great adventure, really good fun, and it did as with everything that we did at that time. You did it. The, the main aim was you've got to get we. It's got to get us as much publicity as possible, and it has got to. It goes some way towards achieving our aim and it's got to be fun, you know, because it's got to be fun. You know, the whole point about me for, of campaigning and all the stuff I've been involved in in my life is not only are we trying to do something important, but we need to have fun and well, at the very least get satisfaction from it while we're doing it. And it was incredibly good fun to do that. It was just such a laugh and uh, busted, um, uh, split up on the day that we got in the charts. And a busted, a band like busted doesn't split up. A band like like busted are artificially deconstructed in the same way they are constructed by their management and the corporate music industry. They are deconstructed at a particular moment in order to maximise profits and all the rest of it. So, uh, so of course, the entire top of the pops that week was cancelled, and it was just a feature about busted and the fact they split up. Otherwise, some of the oldest, ugliest old punks and skinheads in Brighton would have been on top of the pops that weekend. But that, that, oh, I would have loved it. Would have been bloody wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> would have been bloody wonderful. Um, I Yeah, again, I was ch chatting to Aaron, uh, John, one of our other um, hosts on Albion Obsessed, and he, we were talking about the year it came out, and neither of us could believe it was 2004. Because um, yeah. it almost, it's one of those things that it seems like forever ago, and only yesterday, all at the same time. So you would have been about... It's 14 then or something yeah, yeah yeah i would have been 14 so i was going through my like my proper my scar phase then yeah yeah, yeah. Like, the, the, like the 80s two-tone stuff the specials whatnot and then yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So for yeah. me hearing us like a scar song on the radio as well i was like ah oh, this is the kind of music i like because at the time yeah, yeah. it wasn't bad i mean it wasn't bad it was proper scar people playing it um the 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 the, the scar version of of um of um sausage by the sea um we had we had what's his name famous actor girl crikey um, oh, bloke from with nail and i uh, playing on it and he, he he his sax sounded like a, a kazoo uh, but apart from that yeah i was i mean um, i they were quite they, they they were they were funny enough although they were enough copies to for it to end up get staying going higher in the charts there were enough copies for me to end up with about 50 of them um you know here and they've gone over the years so i've still about three left now yeah, it was, it was one of the many things that we did. It was just fun, and it really, it really achieved something. We, you know, we got in the got in the bloody Daily Telegraph and, the, and everything like that. You know, and I mean, and I, I mean, I talked to, I refused to talk to the Daily Mail or the Sun, um, so someone else did that. Um, Norman Cook or somebody, but yeah, well, I had interviewing the Guardian and the Independent and everywhere, and it was and talking about the, the 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 campaign, and it was brilliant. It was really brilliant. It was great. Yeah, it just, it just seems it seemed fun. And as I being a kid, I just remember it being sounding fun. So that's oh, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. So whizzing, whizzing ahead now, a few years to so more the Amex era, especially uh, with our Premier League um, status. Can I just um, say that I, as as I as I um as I was saying from Hereford to here, a lovely Falmer Stadium. The board will not agree. I've never had a credit card. It's still Falmer to me. And when uh, when I did my poem from Hereford to here, which you probably saw because it was the precursor to the very first game against Man City, those four lines were censored from the from the production. So that's why that poem didn't scan properly. 
uh, because four lines were taken out. So yes, um, I ha I've had my run-ins with 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 the Bristol, with 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 Barber and Co over the years, but you know, I mean, uh, we no, we, we it's fine. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. Um, they've got a sponsorship to uh, uh, you know all the rest of it, and I mean, I I, I call it Falmer. I mean, I thought I would say I thought Falmer. I, I use the A word occasionally, but mostly uh, I call it Falmer. But anyway, carry on. So I'm just actually literally about to talk to you about that BT thing because I think that was one of the most beautiful, poignant poems of the time. Because I think, you know, as you say, John, like it's one of those things that we should never forget that has been spoken about a lot. Um, but what it was such a nice way to start our Premier League era, if you like, having that poem on. So did you write that poem specifically for that or was that something you've been working on before? Um, and how did it go about getting on BT? Did they approach you? Yeah, they approached me. I, I, I had, I'd written it. I had written it already. I, I thought that there might be some sort of, of, you know, interest. So I wrote it. I put it out on my. I mean, I've got. I mean, it's grown even more since then. I've got. I've always Facebook has been my. I mean, I'm a writer. I've written for many national newspapers. I've mostly been sacked from them because I went. Toe, toe the bloody party line um but um i mean i write i love i write a lot now and i write a lot i use my facebook um facebook is my my main outlet and i've got i've got you know many thousands many tens of thousands of followers on there so i thought when i put it out on there it might sort of be get picked up and it did um and that's how it came about basically and then i just expanded it a bit and um yeah i was i was very proud of it being out um on you know before the first game I'm glad it was BT because I, at the time, I had an absolute loathing of Sky. I've, I've suspended my loathing of Sky now in the sense that Murdoch no longer owns it. And Sky Arts is actually, has some really good stuff on it sometimes. Some very good stuff indeed. Uh, and of course, it's on Freeview. So, but at that time, I was, you know, I was boycotting Sky. I, I would never, I still wouldn't have a, a subscription to satellite television. Like that. I mean, yeah. I'm too busy anyway. But I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it was, it was. I'm very proud of what we of, of of having done that, and um, and very proud that it that it was used. Yeah, it was. A, it's a. It really is a thing of beauty. But now you've you've got me intrigued. Um, what were the the missing lines? If I could be so bold as to, well, I, I, I've already read them to you. I said, um, it, it was, it was. Our, I mean, the, the 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 you know, it was our lovely lovely Falmer Stadium. The board may not agree. I've never had a credit card. It's still found to me. Those were the four lines. But ah. figured in the expansion of the poem, and they and they and they removed. I I I, I performed them, and then I had a call from uh, from Paul Camelin, who that you know who's head of who's head of media, who I've known. You know, he used to be one of one of our right hand people in the in in the in the war years. I mean, he was out there with the best of them when it came to taking on Archibald and Stanley. And uh, and he said, you know, and I, 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 and he said, we, you know, we can't use that. And I said, well, of course I understand that. I mean, you have got your sponsors and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to say it, uh, and I'm going to use it. Obviously, when when it's not being broadcast on something like that, but you know, I accept that. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I'm, I mean, it was just bloody predictable. But you know, I mean, I thought it might get through, but it didn't. Um, so there you go. But yeah, I'm, I was very pleased and happy to to do it to use it. It was, it was great. Fantastic. Um, that's brilliant, um, John. Um, just really quickly before, because we're getting to the hour mark now. So I just wanted to um, ask you about what you felt about this season. Um, so again, just whizzing forward a little bit. Um, how have you felt like Brighton's season has gone this year? Because it looks like we're on course to finish in the top 10 
uh, in the first division, in the top division of English football. Um, so in your as your history as a Brighton fan, you've seen us at our lowest and you've now, well, I think this is our highest position we've ever finished um, in the top division. So how would you like, summarise this season as a whole? Well, my my sum, 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 my summary summary is quite simple. This is by far the best period ever in our history. Potter is is literally three times as good as any other manager we've ever had in our entire history. Uh, I think he's a tactical genius. I think the, the 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 football we're playing at the moment is the most beautiful I've ever seen. I you know I'm I, I come back and watch match of the day whatever with my wife and and you know, came with me to Gillingham and with Dean. Um, doesn't really. She's even less fond of modern football than I am. She doesn't, um, so she doesn't come to games anymore. But she still shares the the, the happiness, you know, on uh, watching it on match of the day or whatever. We're playing most beautiful football. Just one striker away from a top six club, um, and I think Potter is is a genius, as I say. And this is by far this has been the best season we've had ever in my life, uh, as from you know from every perspective. If it hadn't been for that little dip. Um, I think we might well have got into Europe. And in my opinion, the little dip was entirely caused by the paid, by the hirelings of a murderous, disgusting, murderous, fascist, uh, misogynistic, homophobic state, literally bribing uh, Dan Ashworth to leave the club after there was some sort of a, you know, a belief between him and Barber and Potter that they would be working together for the future. And then these people came in and literally just threw so much money at him that even though, I mean, I don't understand this. You only need so much money. You know, they're all already incredibly well paid. Why? Uh, well, OK, because it's a big club and all the rest of it and they've got a big fan base. But, you know, I would, I can, one thing I will say to you is, and I mean this, I love the Albion and I've been through them with everything. But if something like that ever took the club over, I, I, I wouldn't watch them. I would never stop supporting them. Uh, but I would, but I would not. While while something like that owned it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go and watch them, um, and yeah. I would do everything I could. Um, however, if I'm, I don't think it, I'm certainly won't ever happen because Bloom is a proper fan and blah blah blah. But I mean, I would do everything I could just to say to people, we should not. I would rather be less successful than have this. You know, it's like. But you know, okay, that's that's me. That's modern football, whatever. Um, but I do. What all I was saying was that or about that was that I believe that the dip that period where we lost six in a row was actually down to a, a, a certain level of confusion and disappointment and disarray for a short period of time, which I think has been alluded to obliquely by Potter in some, by, by Barber in some of his, his notes, um, that they were really shocked by it. I mean, I saw actually a report in, uh, in one of the national newspapers that they were actually seriously shocked. They didn't believe it would happen. Um, but apart from that, which was not of our doing, that was Dan Ashworth's decision. I hope he's enjoying his bloody gardening. I hope there's lots of bindweed in his garden and uh, and, and and Japanese knotweed and uh, all the things that we don't like here in, in Southwick in ours. Um, and um, anyway, so apart from that, it's been absolutely brilliant. And, and the football we're playing is fantastic. Uh, and we're just, we were just a couple of games away from, I would, before I die, I would love, I've done, I mean, I'm off on my next year. I mean, I've done about 60, I've done about 600 gigs, more than that probably in mainland Europe. I speak French and German. I'm a linguist. I would love to see the Albion play in mainland Europe before I die. That's probably the, my, my last Albion related sort of 
I mean, you know, there's this funny thing about it, isn't there? Um, you know, I've watched this club all my life, and now, realistically, the best I can hope for is that we might finish seventh in the Premier League or whatever, you know. And that that kind of glass scene, that's what is really wrong with modern football. The procession, OK, but, yes, but Leicester. Yes, I know, but Leicester. I don't think but Leicester is ever going to happen again. Uh, and I do think that it's going to eat itself. I think modern football will eat itself. I think the bottom will fall out at some point. I'm not quite sure how, but I think it will. <coughs> but yeah, the best season in our history, the best team in our history, the best manager in our history, um, and fits so fittingly, poetically, 25 years on, as it was fitting and poetic that 20 years on, from being at the very worst of times, literally almost to the day of the Hereford game, that we got in the Premier League for the first time. This club do do like to do things like that, don't they? Poetic, yeah, really. you say. Um, so just before we sign off, John, I'd love to just push you for one more thing, and that's your, just your highlight as an Albion supporter across your lifetime. So absolutely, absolutely, no doubt at all. Uh, the final whistle at Hereford. You know, forget the Premier League, forget getting to the Cup final, forget you know beating beating Sheffield Wednesday at Arsenal in nineteen eighty three and having a gig straight afterwards and literally not remembering what I performed or anything. And I did an interview for a fanzine run by a regular friend of mine who I still know now and I can't remember what what I said. Um, but but and and all that and all the promotions and you know and everything you know everything without any doubt at all the. the the final whistle of the game, which stops us going out of the Football League, knowing that we didn't have a ground the following season, is my top moment in my life as an Albion fan. Hard to hard to argue with that at all. Um, thank you so much uh, for giving up some time of your evening to come and chat to us. It's been Hi. a roller coaster. I've I feel like I've learned so much about yourself, about Brighton as the club, and punk rock as well. Which is well, thank, you, thank you for running a really interesting, intelligent. Um, broad podcast which i've never listened to before but i will certainly do now uh and for inviting me onto it and, and giving me the opportunity to spend time people a bit, bit younger than my friend alan 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 80 at the albion raw who i'll be probably doing one for next week so well done for taking this into the new generation and everything obviously i mean i follow what's going on what people are doing but i've never never been actually involved in one of these before um, so thanks for inviting me, and and yeah, it's it's really really good. Well, but I w I just want to say, and I'm sure all of us will echo this. Just thank you for what you've done for our club. Cheers. I did it because I believed, you know, and I've I've always stood up for what I believe is right all my life, um, and all these little victories, whether it be, you know, it's a big victory, you know, I mean, last year when my wife became the first ever Labour councillor in Southwick Green or, um, you know, or, or many other things. But of all the different things that I've done, I think the thing I'm most proud of as a, as a political activist is saving the saving the Albion because I know of the legacy. I know what it means to people. And I know, quite apart from the football aspect, there's so many people I know who really did think that ordinary people could not achieve anything. And when they, when they were involved in that, and they saw that they could, it took them on, it took their lives on a new trajectory, and that was really important to me. Fantastic, and I think that's a, a perfect place uh, to finish. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Curtis, for joining me this evening. Thank you, listeners. Please do not forget to like, share, and subscribe. And if after this you fancy it, go listen to some punk rock and kick up a fuss somewhere. Take it <laughs> easy, guys. We'll see you again soon. Bye bye.